Hello, and welcome to the Nonprofit Radio Show, a podcast with tips and tools for small nonprofits. If you feel in the dark about how to run a nonprofit, sunshine is on its way. I'm Nancy Bacon, and I'm joined by Sarah Brooks, and today we're going to talk about program evaluation. Wait a minute, Nancy. Didn't we already talk about evaluation? I feel like we talked about why we should evaluate and how we might do it just a little while ago. Uh, You're right. We did. It it was December 2020, so roughly a year ago. But, you know, we don't talk enough about evaluation. In my experience, it's the one thing that always falls away, isn't it? Like we get so busy doing our programs and at the end of the program, we're tired. You know, we finish things out and then all of a sudden we say, shoot, I forgot a survey. I mean, I just did it last week. I, I got to the end of my program and I had forgotten that I needed a survey. So that's why we've invited our colleague into this nonprofit space, Shari Smith, to share her wisdom on evaluation. But before we introduce Shari, Sarah, what are you most thinking about when it comes to evaluation? What should we ask her? Well, I want to know how we move evaluation from the nice to have list, you know, or the if we have time, we should do it list to the this is just baked into what we do. We always, always do this. And I I feel the same way, Nancy, like I believe in it intellectually. I'm right there with it. And it's amazing how often I forget (laughs) Um, because you have to remember to start at the beginning with that baseline. But I would love to give our our listeners some tips and tools and how to just make this the easy part of what you do. Yeah, I I know that some of our loyal listeners are hitting the strategy uh, button on their bingo card because, yeah, there is that strategy piece. And I think there's also for me, you know, Shari talks a lot about culture, and I'm curious about how do we shift our mindset? How do we shift our mindset from compliance, you know, I have to do this because my funder requires me to do this, to being more of a learning organization? So I'm excited to talk about culture. But so let's stop talking about what we want to talk about. Let's get into the conversation. Let me introduce our guest. Shari Smith is the author of Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple. We'll make sure we link that book in in the show notes because it's really one of those must-have books for nonprofit leaders. Shari is passionate about making program evaluation fun, practical, and usable. She founded Evaluation in Action to empower nonprofits with data. Shari writes, teaches, and lifts up evaluation everywhere she goes. Welcome, Shari. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm excited to talk with you. Great. Well, let's dive in. Okay. You write about building a culture around evaluation, and you talk specifically about how to go, as Nancy mentioned, from compliance to learning. That's right. Resistance to willingness. Mm -hmm. So how does a busy small nonprofit like mine build a culture of evaluation? So, and when you say small, you know, I'm assuming maybe one to three people somewhere in there are really small. So when you're a company of one, you know, your culture is pretty limited, right? But it's really about your mindset, right? Like, what are you interested in doing? What do you want to learn? I think too often we've been set up to think that program evaluation is mandated. It's required by funders and therefore we have to do it. And that's honestly, regardless of the size of your organization, right? That Funders are like, you have to do this. And then we feel mandated to do it. And then, you know, who really wants to absolutely eat their vegetables, right? Like when you're told you have to do it, it has a different connotation. Whereas we flipped that narrative and nonprofits got in the driver's seat instead of feeling like the funders were in the driver's seat. And if the nonprofit is in the driver's seat with the questions of, wow, I really want to learn what's working 
what's not working so I could be most efficient as possible with my time and with my money, right? Like what if I had the data I needed to not guess at what I should do next in my program, but actually look at the data to tell me what's working and what's not working and make decisions based on that. And that really is the mindset. That is the shift. That is how we become a learning organization rather than feeling like it's just something on the checklist. And like what you said, Sarah, that's how we bake it into what we do. It's no longer a separate thing on a checklist, kind of begrudgingly have to do it because the funders are telling us we have to, but really looking at what data do I need to understand how to best hone my program so that it is serving and meeting the mission the best it possibly can. Like, how can I do that? Nancy, is this sounding remarkably familiar to conversations you and I have had about fundraising? How we need to shift our mindset around fundraising. It's not the thing you have to do to get to the good work of your mission. What if you what if you saw it as a thing you you have this wonderful opportunity to build a movement around? And I think you're talking about the exact same thing. Sometimes, sometimes in small nonprofits, we just have to take a moment, breathe, and say, what if we looked at this from a different way? Do we somehow feel different about it? Absolutely. I think people definitely feel differently about it because once that shift occurs, regardless of the size of your organization, it's, there's no going back. Once you build those evaluative thinking muscles where it's no longer of like, what should we do and how should I move forward with my program? It becomes a just reflex to let's look at the data. Like, what are the data telling us? Who do we need to survey to figure out what to do next? And so that's really it's really empowering. What, what I really love about this is it's, you know, we talk about there's three things that nonprofit leaders need to learn about. So three buckets of knowledge. They need to learn about what they do. So land conservancy or homelessness or whatever. But they also need to learn about two other things, some nonprofit stuff, like how to do evaluation. So there's a learning piece there about how do I actually write a survey? How do I actually gather data? And the third thing is about their organization. And that's, Shari, you just mentioned this, like, you know, be curious about the impact of your programs, the role your programs are playing in the community. So so building that mindset of being a learning organization across different kinds of learning. We're all curious people. So, so pulling that forward is really an interesting idea for nonprofit folks who are busy doing the work. I want to call something out though that you just touched on though. You know, if you're if you're really getting curious and you're getting into it, one thing that I think stops people from doing evaluation is a fear that they're going to learn it's not working and they don't want to share that with their funder. Super common. People are like, of course, we're already making a difference. Or they sweep, you know, unfavorable data under a rug because they don't want to share it, you know, and they they just get very nervous because I understand there's this emotional investment that people have made into the cause that they're working so hard for. So they don't want anything to show anything less than a straight A student, right? But the reality is, is when you are honest and vulnerable about where you're at and what's working and where it's not working to write an improvement plan and highlight what you learned and then share that with the funder. I can't guarantee it, but personally, all the funders and clients that I've worked with, I've never had a funder like not be happy about that. That transparency really helps to build that relationship and diffuse that power dynamic of we have the money and we want the money, right? So like it makes evaluation more about let's learn and make sure our resources are being used as efficiently as possible to achieve our program goals. So when we remove the fear and when we stop running away from it and instead run to it, then we can get curious. 
Well, and I think that that raises a really interesting point too, that it also lets us as a a small nonprofit organization see ourselves as part of a bigger body of knowledge trying to learn. We often see ourselves as, well, we're just, I just serve this little geographical area or I just serve this little particular niche. But really, Nancy and I are always encouraging people to see themselves as part of a bigger whole. And the reality is nonprofit organizations are always grappling with the hardest issues in society. Yes. If they were easy to fix, a for-profit would be doing them. That's right. They were easy to fix. Government agencies would have it all figured out. Things land in the lap of the nonprofit organizations when they're hard. And it means we have to see ourselves as part of a movement bigger than our organization, right? If we're trying to address homelessness, it's really complicated. And so if we see ourselves as a good evaluators, even if it means we learn our particular program wasn't as effective, we're adding to that body of knowledge, right. our cause, our mission, and that should be considered a really high and lofty goal for us as an organization. I wholeheartedly agree with that, Sarah, because if you're learning it's not working, why continue to spend your time and money on something that's not working, right? Exactly. So you're becoming like a miniature think tank. I love that. Mm -hmm. So Shari, in your book, you give guidance on measurable outcomes. Talk more about that because, you know, we hear a lot about SMART objectives and for folks who who are new to that idea, that means specific, measurable, actionable, relevant, and time-bound. And wow, that's five whole letters. I mean, seriously, like right there, I'm feeling a major barrier because how do I create goals that are specific, measurable, actionable, relevant, time-bound, and serve my mission? So tell us, how can a busy nonprofit leader craft measurable outcomes that make sense? And can you give us some examples? Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. Yeah, I remember learning about the SMART formula early in my career, and I had the same reaction. I was just like, that's a mouthful. That's a lot to think through. What is truly important? Like we stripped everything away. What is the essence of a measurable outcome? And at the end of the day, a measurable outcome is a change statement right? So what do you expect to have change as a result of the work that you're doing? I mean, you had mentioned, you know, one of the things that nonprofits need to know is what do you do? They need to be able to articulate what they do. And that's one of the first steps in creating your measurable outcome, right? Measurable outcomes also drive the content of all your data collection tools. So when I have people say, I know, Shari, that we need to do a survey. I have no idea what to ask. And I say, well, what do you expect to have change? Because then that's what you ask about. So creating the measurable outcomes, and I'll add to that, you need to create them collaboratively. I understand some of you may be a party of one, but I encourage you to also get together with a board member and create these. So you're not just creating them in silo. It's really helpful for it to be at least two people involved with creating them. But in my book, Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple, I have a whole chapter dedicated to how to create measurable outcomes. And I'll share with you this formula because it's super easy. It's just three steps. You look at your action, like what's going to change? Are you going to improve something? Are you going to decrease something? Like what is the action that's going to happen? Then state what will change. And that's usually in one of four buckets. What are you going to change in terms of knowledge, skills, attitude, or behavior? And sometimes I include for what group. So you have the action, you have the state, what will change, and then sometimes for what group. So let me just share a couple of examples with you. I worked with In For All, they have a STEM Connect program, and we looked at what they expect to have changed for the students they are working with. So they had the improve the attitude towards STEM-related subjects for students, right? 
So they're improving. So that's your change and their attitude towards STEM related subjects, right? That is what is going to change, right? Another one is increasing interest in STEM related careers. So I want you to just take a moment and reflect or, or pause if you're listening and just take a couple of notes and jot down, what do you expect to have change? Knowledge, skills, attitude, and behavior. If you're looking at like your program description, it's probably right in there. What do you expect to have change? And then attach an action to it, like what's happening, increasing, decreasing, improving, reducing, whatever it is. Another organization I worked with, Candlelighters for Children with Cancer, same thing. I use that same formula to walk the staff through how to create this collaboratively because having this formula empowers you to kind of have a very succinct way of filling in the blanks so you're not like left with this really vast and like this. I know smart, a lot of people use smart, but I'm just, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so by using this formula, right? So with candlelighters, they have to expand social connections with other families experiencing pediatric cancer, right? So the action being to expand and what they're expanding are the social connections. Another one is to increase knowledge about how to navigate the medical process and financial resources. So what we're increasing is a body of knowledge. And so now we know what to measure. Now we know what to ask about in our surveys because we have defined what we expect to have change. The first thing that occurs to me is that first thing that you said around you know, what difference do you want to see? I think that's a big question. I, in my work, I am often asking people, what do you want to move the needle on? Mm-hmm. And people are kind of taken aback, like, oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm so busy doing the work. I haven't actually thought about what big change in the world I want to see. So I, I think that's what struck me right off the bat is asking those big questions. Sarah, what yeah. struck you? Oh. I think it's this interesting mix of you want to ask the big question, like, did we move the needle on you know, solving homelessness in our community, for example. But then you have to kind of work backwards toward, okay, what are the interim? We might not get there in three months in our three-month program. So we have to understand the steps along the way, right? Like, so we are making progress toward that by by what what would be the what would be the signs that we're showing progress. And I I think you what I like about your formula is that we can use it at different sort of levels of evaluation. There's the big dream level, you know, did we move that needle? And then we can also say, or did did we move the needle a millimeter? Because that's progress. That means it's working, right? And I, I think that what I like about that formula is it's really adaptable to whatever sort of scale of evaluation we need to be doing. And what's great too, is then you have your outcome statements to put into grant proposals, right? Mm-hmm. And then you were with confidence able to put those in your grant proposal because then you're gathering data around those outcomes rather than, and I'm not saying this is any of you listeners out there, but it's for sure happened that I've worked with organizations where what they put in their grant proposal, the grant writer didn't talk to the program staff at all. So you know where this is going, right? So then they put these lofty promises in the grant proposal to secure the funds. And then they're on the hook to report back to the funder. And the program staff says, we can't measure that. We have no idea. And that is why doing it collaboratively is so important because you have to make sure it's realistic that program staff are bought in on what the grant writers want to also put in, right? So that's a really important part. But like at the end of the day, what people need to be able to do is define the impact you expect to make, and then you can measure it. That's kind of at the core of what evaluation is. You have to define what you expect to occur because then you can measure if it in fact happened. I love that. 
but hard and profound to do. Yes. (laughs) So another part of your book, you suggest writing down a logic model. I will admit I hear logic model and I I get a little minor outbreak of hives. You're not alone. So help me, help calm me down a little bit. Talk us through what a logic model is and what's a simple way to get to one if I'm an executive director who needs to repeat this with my board. So it's really funny you say that, Sarah, because almost verbatim in the beginning of my logic model chapter is if you hear this term and a nervous quiver goes down your spine, you're not alone. Yes, that's really true. So I talk about logic models and let me get to that in the middle in a minute, because then what I did was when I learned not everybody needs the traditional logic model, I tend to use elements from a logic model and I create what's called an impact model. So we're really looking at, it's a visual summary of what your program does and the change it's expected to make. I like to also put it in um, the brand colors. So you can use it beyond evaluation, right? You can use it in your marketing and your fundraising and everything else. And I also like to make it, you know, just super user-friendly, something that just resonates. It doesn't look like it came from a third-party evaluator. It looks like it came from your internal organization. So it's just really important to do that. I also like to play with it. And like, if you're, if you are, um, you know, like in for all, it's a STEM connect program. So their impact model is a linear equation, right? This plus this equals (laughs) these student outcomes. Whereas I work with some housing organizations, so their model is in a house, you know, so like the roof has the program goal and the windows include like, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it doesn't have to be as dry. So let me go back to a logic model, like the traditional logic model. Okay. It's a little dry and it has just like your table, just a black and white cookie cutter kind of thing where you talk about your goal. Like what's the big dream for your program? What are your inputs? What are you putting into it in terms of staff, materials, equipment? What goes into that program? Then what activities are you doing for that program, right? That's what people should be able to just talk about. That's what we do, right? That's like the big piece that's probably on your website and in your materials. And then your outputs, that's just bean counting. How many people participated? How many sessions did you deliver? Those kinds of things, just the numbers. And then the outcomes, of course, is what we already talked about. So visually, what it does is have this linear movement of like, here's our goal, inputs, activities, outputs, and outcomes. I go into detail about this in the book. There's also a companion website that book readers can enjoy that has a downloadable logic model worksheet to move through these pieces and a little bit more easily. I included the logic model piece, even though I personally don't do them very often because frequently people need them for federal grants mm-hmm. or they're required to do them in other capacities for other reasons. So if they need it, we will do it. But I will say my preference is the impact model because I think that's a lot more reflective of what an organization needs or wants to communicate. And it really just... I customize the impact model depending on what of those components are most relevant to communicate what their program does and the difference they expect to make. I think it is helpful. I know Boeing for a long time expected all grantees to complete one. And I remember being on the program side saying, gosh, how are we going to actually fill this thing out so that Boeing evaluators think that our program is making a difference? Right. You know, I think about it as a recipe. You know, you put it flour, egg and and water together, you mix it up, you get, you know, pancakes or whatever. The the interesting thing that, you know, I've often coached nonprofit leaders to consider just two columns, your inputs and your outcomes. So oftentimes there's two things happening. 
very few inputs are going in and the goal is like world peace or ending hunger. (laughs) So you have a lack of alignment there, or sometimes you have the opposite. You have a huge amount of staff and, and just inputs of all sorts going into this machinery and almost nothing is coming out the other end. So I do think using a logic model to make sure that things line up, that what you're, what you are putting into it is yielding something coming out the other end. That is realistic, right? So like, if you're like, we're going to do this school lunch program and that will end world hunger. You need to be realistic about what your program is going to actually achieve. And that is really common that I come across when I work with organizations where they have a separate development team from a program team, right? Because what development teams often want to be able to say are really huge, lofty outcomes. But the program team are like, no, that's not what we're doing. We can't say that. There's one organization where it was all about an immigration education program, like to try and secure a path towards citizenship, right? And the grant writer wanted to be able to say, hey, you know, what this program does is helps people get secure their path to citizenship. So they become U.S. citizens is what they basically wanted to be able to say. Program staff said, no, 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 no. (laughs) We teach them how to do that. But once they leave our classroom, we're not tracking them. We We don't hold their hand through the process of actually becoming a citizen but we teach them. So then the outcome becomes their understanding of how to secure a path towards citizenship has increased, right? So that is the outcome then that a grant writer is like, oh yeah, I can still work with that. I'll put that in there, right? So it's really, it's a compromise and it's really the capital R in realistic is making sure it is realistic to measure. Well, and what becomes really interesting about that conversation, right, is I can then picture a board of that hypothetical organization then saying, well, is, is that the outcome we want or should we invest more inputs and figure out how to follow up with people and get them there? If the outcome we really want is the one that grant writer was saying, right? Like it opens that exposure to like, well, this is what it, what we can measure and and what we can say confidently we're doing. And if that doesn't match up with the outcome we actually are wanting, then we can see we need to invest in something more or different. Right. Exactly. So let's shift over to data. Um, Data is, you know, the Achilles heel of a lot of organizations. I remember showing up at one organization that I was working with and I asked for data and the executive director handed me a, a stack about a foot tall of student applications. Oh my gosh. So essentially I was handed this like raw data of students who had applied to their program and I, I, I'm not entirely sure what I was supposed to do with that, but clearly no actual data was being collected. And the reality is that nonprofit, they were so busy doing the work. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not from lack of productivity. It's just that the managing of data is so hard. So help us with data. What is the minimum viable data gathering structure? Like what is the bare bones that every nonprofit should consider? Tracking participation. And tracking what you're doing, like tracking your activities. So say you're doing food boxes. You should be tracking how many food boxes you're delivering. Maybe you should be tracking it by geographic region, if that'll be useful to you, you know, track. And, and tracking, you know, how just all of that, just the tracking the participation and tracking your activities. So if you're doing like trainings or education events, track how many you're doing, 
and how many people participated. That can be done in a simple spreadsheet. You don't need like a lofty, sophisticated program for that. But but you do want to set up your spreadsheet in such a way that it's easy to pull the data from it so that you're not like up till 2 a.m. trying to like figure out how many people participated over the course of a year. It should be able to easily pull over any time period. Be like, okay, between here and here, how many people were served or whatever it might be. So that's the minimum. That's so fascinating. Thank you. I was expecting the minimum to be a like much higher bar. <laughs> no, we, and well, I make that the minimum because I can't tell you how many organizations I come into and they're like, we want to do surveys and focus groups and but they, they're ready. They're ready. They're chomping at the bit to get out of the gates. But then I'm like, well, tell me about your participation. And they show me these like super messy spreadsheets that are support that they're like, oh, we're up to all hours. We're not sure how to pull the data, but we're tracking it. No, you should be able to store it and manage it in such a way that you can easily pull it out and do reports. And if that's not the case, it's time to get a database. It is time to get a really good database. So there's a whole chapter in the book about data management of what you should be looking at, what you should be tracking. But my mantra is to start small, be successful, and then expand. So for that particular organization, when I saw that their tracking participation was a mess, I'm like, you need to be able to really easily report out your numbers and see who you're serving, like for internal purposes, not just for the funders, but for yourselves. And then we can layer on understanding what kind of change that you're making. But at a minimum, you want to have a solid grasp on who you're serving. Well, and what I love about that kind of bare minimum starting place is it reminds us that we should be tracking the things that will help us make better decisions. So I've definitely been involved with organizations where we get on wild conversations about, wouldn't it be cool if we knew? It would be cool. This? <laughs> and, and then we're like, okay, well, to track that would take a really long time and might not even be accurate. And what would we do with that information if we had it? Would it actually change something about the way we run the program? So it's like we start with those bare minimums of participation. We do it well. We get comfortable with data management. Great, great advice for how to start. And then we should only add on the things that if we got an answer to it, right, it would make us make a different decision. Like, oh, when we learn that kids under the age of seven don't come to our program for some reason, okay, then we might do something different. But if we don't actually care if kids under the age of seven come to our program or not, why are we gathering that data? It might be interesting, but if it's not at the core of one of the objectives we have, right, one of those outcomes we want to have, why are we gathering it? We're just making our data be complex, right? You hit on like one of the core cornerstones of how I approach evaluation. It's usage. If you're not using the data to satisfy funder requirements to for program planning or any other reason, don't ask it. It shouldn't be a, well, you know, I work with a lot of organizations where they've had the same intake forms for 30 plus years, and they've been asking the same questions for 30 plus years. So their participants have taken the time to fill it out. And I would go, I go through it line by line. How are you using the responses from this question? And if they're not, it goes it's not like a, we should ask it, or we're interested in just knowing, nope, if you're not using it, don't ask it. Don't waste their time. Don't waste your time. I think of this as being particularly important in the world of increasing our equity goals. Yeah. So often we're asking for all this demographic data and all of this, you know, race and location and experience and poverty levels and blah, blah, blah. But we aren't necessarily doing anything with that data. 
we're gathering it because we want to know what percentage of, of this population or that population is involved in our programs, but it's not tying back into our strategy. Right. So I think that's really important that we're tying our evaluation system into our strategic plan or our strategy, whatever that is. You bet. I completely agree with that because I also find, you know, same with funders. If funders are asking in their reports for whatever data they're asking for, how are you, how are they using it? If you're just asking for the demographic data because you think you should, but you're actually not using it, stop asking for it. Or start using it. Or start start using it. Or start using it. So we could clearly talk with you all day long about this. And uh, wow, definitely want to keep thinking about it. But we know our nonprofit radio show listeners have only a finite amount of time to be with us. So what final advice do you have about evaluation to share today? I think my final advice is to do it. Don't be afraid of it, but to do it, to find a way to start, like what you said in the beginning, Sarah, on your nice to have list, but how do we bake it into what we do? So Mm -hmm. bake it into what you do by doing it, integrate it into your program planning process. So it's a part of it. Well, so for our word of the week this week, we thought about the word improve. And and Shari, I got that word from the tagline of your book, get data, show your impact, improve your programs. Sarah and I have a whole episode on good programs and what it means to have a good program. And we talk a lot about being a learning organization and centering those good, good programs as key, not only for impact, but for your fundraising as well. So I I think our word needs to be improved, but why did you choose that word for the tagline of your book? Well, I think that there are two different pieces for program evaluation, right? To demonstrate impact, so to be able to show your impact, and to improve your programs. And I really feel like program evaluation at its core is a learning opportunity to improve your program. So I feel like that you can improve and improve, basically, right? So I think that's why I chose that to be a part of my tagline, because it is about improvement. I love that word, improve. I think nonprofit radio show listeners know that I also help coach a cross-country running team, and we're always talking about improving. And one of the things that I realize um, is a key element to improving is to being vulnerable. You have to acknowledge where you're starting, right? Our, our, some of our runners who've never run a 5K before, in order to improve, they have to run that first race <laughs> and they have to acknowledge that that's the time they ran. And right. it might not be the dream time that they had, right? But that's where they're starting. Yeah. And then you get to, you get to get better and you do the things you, you learn how you learn what you need to do. You get better. And then you get to check in again, which is also a moment of vulnerability. You might have gotten slower. <laughs> Probably not, but you might have. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you check in and you see where you are. And I, I just love that what I think we're always encouraging nonprofit organizations to do is to be brave, um, to, to, to own your space enough, to be confident enough that you um, are going to learn and figure out how to move the needle in your cause and in your movement, that you can be brave enough to kind of be vulnerable and say, I'll, okay, we'll measure where we're starting. And then we're going to see where we go. And maybe we don't move it as much as we want to, but we're going to, we're going to figure out how to move it as much as we want to. And by the end of the time, we'll get there. That's right. I love that. I mean, nonprofits have already been so courageous stepping forward to solve the problems of our communities or the opportunities that exist within us. So use that courage to just do a little bit more, do some evaluation. So our time is up. Shari, we want to thank you so much for being with us, right? Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
It's been awesome. So listeners, you are working hard to run programs, raise money, and make a difference. Evaluation is an important tool in your toolbox. The information it produces, to go to Shari's tagline, shows your impact and improves your programs. We know you have a lot going on. Hopefully this conversation and resources like Shari's book help you to make it all a little bit easier. You got this. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Radio Show. If you like what you heard, please consider sharing the podcast and rating us on your favorite podcast site. Your support is the best way for us to reach more people. We invite you to look at the show notes at nonprofitradioshow.com for ideas on how to bring these conversations into your organization or to tell us what you'd like to hear next. Nonprofit Radio Show is produced by Nancy Bacon and Sarah Brooks. Editing and post-production are provided by Margaret Mepschulte of Three Choices Creative Communications. Together, we are inspired by you and other nonprofit leaders doing important work in our communities.